Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. The other thing you can do is take your client list. It's harder with 400, but if you've got, you know, 20 clients, it's a little bit more manageable. And you can say, okay, I'm going to force rank my clients from the ones I really love to the ones I really can't stand. And chances are, you know who's at the top, you know who's at the bottom. It's the middle that's the challenge. Pay attention to your energy around that. When you're excited to answer the phone, when you're excited to go to a meeting, when you're excited to work on one of their projects, that's a sign that you're probably working from some aspect of your genius zone. Welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. Most CPAs work super long hours for the revenue they bring in. Automation is upending the profession in profound ways, and the race for optimized efficiency is on. But there's another path, and that path is not automation. It's authority. Here today to talk with me about this is my guest, Rochelle Moulton. Rochelle turns consultants and big thinkers into authorities. She earned her consulting and big thinker stripes leading introverted brainiacs at some powerful global consulting firms like Towers Perrin and Arthur Anderson. But even better, she has built, led, and sometimes sold more than a few six, seven, and eight-figure consulting businesses and earned the equivalent of a second MBA building authority brands and businesses with hundreds of soloists. Rochelle Moulton, welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thank you, Geraldine. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. So let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Before we dig into the meat, define authority. What is it and what is it not? Oh, interesting. So authority is when other people in your specific niche look to you as a trusted source of information and advice in your field. Um, What it's not is it's not about being a celebrity. It's not about being famous. It's about really carving out a space that you dig into and you own and you build authority because authority doesn't happen in a nanosecond. I mean, none of our careers happen in a nanosecond. But once you choose how you're going to focus your time and your energy, and you start to really dig into that and understand your people and your area of expertise, you start to build this body of knowledge. You build authority, and eventually you become one. Mm, I like it. So how is authority different than just expertise? 
Uh, okay. I think of it in kind of three chunks. So there's the first piece, you could call it freelancing if you want to, where you're, you're basically lending out your brain for someone else. All right. And you're building expertise in that case. Then kind of the next level I think of as expertise, like accounting is an expertise. Being a CPA is an area of expertise. And so you're an expert. People trust you to give them advice, sell them advice. They trust you, uh, what you have to say. You've done the work to really build your area of expertise. Authority is a little bit different. Authority is like expertise on steroids. So it's where you're public. And by public, I typically mean you're publishing. And publishing doesn't have to be books. It could be that you're writing blog posts or articles, or you have a podcast that's publishing, or you're doing a video series on YouTube or Instagram or wherever. You are publishing your point of view out to the world. And when you start to do that, first of all, it feels risky when you first start doing that. It feels probably feels strange. But what you're doing is by going public, you are testing the boundaries of your expertise and you're developing your point of view typically as you go. And the more you do that, the more your people, we can talk more about that, but the more your people will recognize you and start to talk about you, to refer you, to hire you, to buy your stuff. Gotcha. So can you illustrate this a little bit? Give us some examples of people we know or might have heard of who have businesses that are based on their authority. Well, you, for example, right? Your business is based on your expertise that you have published and talked about, and you are building authority. Um, but typically, well, let me just give you some names. We'll see if people recognize them. Seth Godin, is an authority on marketing. Jill Conrath is an authority on sales. Charles H. Green is an authority on trust. Who else can I think of? Um, there's, there's, I mean, just think about- Like Gary V. Um, Gary V. Simon Sinek. I would say, I would say Simon more so than Gary V. And I'm not sure, because I don't know Gary V's business, but he's got a lot of other things, but he definitely has a big brand personality business. I'm not sure if I would define all of it as authority, but it's the way I look at it is it's where you're using your expertise and you're pushing it out so that other people recognize it and start calling you that. I mean, think about this, right? Somebody in your in your sphere, a CPA might say, oh, you know, there's an authority on CPA businesses, and that is Geraldine, as an example. And I want to make this clear that authority isn't just about being like the top big kahuna authority. Because this is all about how you niche your expertise, you can create your own white space where you get to be king, mm. where you get to be the authority. So there might be 500 authorities in the marketing space, but each one has a little different area of expertise, a little bit different focus. Gotcha. Okay. And there's, I feel like there could be a lot of baggage, a lot of uh, charge maybe around the word authority. I'm just wondering if people have a, if you find that people have a hard time identifying with that word for whatever reason, because they just kind of associate it with power or stature and those sorts of things. Can you comment on that? Well, yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it didn't make the book, but when I first started thinking and writing about this, um, I, I felt like 
we all pictured the authority as this sort of silver haired yes, white exactly. man standing yes. on a stage with this voice like the voice of God, you know, that that was what we thought about with authority. But I believe that that's an old vision of authority. And I think about the way that society and business is, is run now, the way that we can come from almost any place and create a business virtually online and share digitally means that it's way easier. The boundaries have come way down to build authority. And so you think about uh, someone like Malala as an example, who when she first hit the, the global stage was a very young girl. And over time, she built authority in a non-traditional way. It is, I think that's my other point is this doesn't have to be about how many degrees you have or how many you know letters you have after your name, but about the work that you've done in the specialty area that you've chosen. And that is, if it's only academic, that might not be enough. At least in my experience, it's heavily weighted with practical experience because that's what we're all looking for. We want to understand not just, oh, how do we think about it big picture, but how does it get done every day? So I, th- I see authority as much more accessible than that old, you know, silver-haired devil on the stage. Right. And the sort of academic theory around how to do business when really people want boots on the ground. Just show me what to do next. Okay. So why bother building an authority business? Why not just build a business based on efficiency and automation and where you could just push a button and have the computer spit everything out? Uh, two reasons. One, money. Uh, second, money. No, I'm kidding. First one is money. But the second one, and and in my book, I really talk about the process to get you there. But the second piece is that, that you're going to be happier typically. And by happy, I mean that you're going to design a business that allows you to work from your genius zone. Yes. And that genius zone is different for everybody. There may be someone who that high level of efficiency, that's their genius zone. And they're going to do great. And that's the sphere they should stay in probably, Mm -hmm. right? But maybe they'll build authority for being that hyper efficient uh, firm or person or leader. It's really about how you want to work and how you want to create value with the work that you do in your business. Okay. (laughs) I want to talk about value that you create, but first we can't skip past the money. So let's go back to the money because I think a lot of people think that there's, you know, if they, first of all, automation is going to kill hourly billing. It's just really going to stick a fork in it for once and for all. But you can still improve your margins by getting more efficient. And, you know, automation, of course, technology and plugging it all together will make it more efficient. So I think people see the possible revenue gains and the margin improvements by going the efficiency direction. But what I think is entirely nebulous and just, you know, buried way back in the fog are the potential margins and revenue gains by going the authority direction. So what can you say about that? Well, you may have to help me understand how your audience thinks about their business because I'm sitting there thinking, okay, efficiency and all that is great, but how are you going to get those clients? Like what's the marketing end of this? The efficiency feels like it's very internally focused and it's focused on price ultimately. That I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I mean, that's just how I'm hearing it, how I'm taking that, that it feels like very internally priced focused. Well, that... <laughs> so that, that whoever's the cheapest, whoever's the cheapest gets the most clients. Okay. So you're opening up this whole can of worms here, which is value creation. So you might as well go back there. And it's very difficult to get valuable clients or clients for whom you can create value if you don't know what it is that is valuable to them. 
and how to create that value. To your point, the efficiency is all well and good, but it's like you say, it's all internal and it has, it isn't outward focused and asking the question, who are we going to serve so that when they come in the door, our business is optimized. That conversation is hardly happening. It's happening a little bit. When I look out into the accounting space, there's so much conversation about automation and tech stacks and efficiency and how technology is changing and disrupting and everything. But there's the conversation around value creation is all but absent. And just by to support that with data, because we like data around here, it's kind of required. Um, there was a conference recently that is a national conference for CPAs and accountants. And I was looking through the topic list. It was like four days of talks and, you know, 50 talks or whatever. And as far as I could tell, exactly zero were about value creation. Wow. Yeah, it's just not. I mean, it's empty. (laughs) Nature abhors a vacuum. So here we are. So, you know, value creation, how do you create value? What is valuable to your clients? Ready, set, go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to start with a word before we get to value. Uh, I think I said it earlier, which is niching. Yeah. And by niche, I mean that you're picking a space, ideally a white space in the marketplace that no one else owns that you're going to own. And I'll just give you a really simple example. So I'm a non-accountant. I go to a cocktail party and I there's two accountants and I meet both of them. And one says, hi, I do income taxes. Oh, great. You know, nice to know you. I'm not going to remember that. Every accountant does income taxes in my brain as a non-specialist. Uh-huh. I meet somebody else and they say, Oh, I do financial work for Broadway performers. I remember that. Yeah. Because it's Broadway performers. And I'm probably going to ask that person, oh, really? Tell me more. What do you do? And it's all in how they've positioned themselves within this niche. Because I think value creation, I'll segue to that in in a little bit more too, uh, value creation is about what audience are you going to serve? We don't Mm -hmm. create value in a vacuum. We have to provide value to some designated group of people or companies or firms. So I believe until you get clear on what that niche is going to be, which is kind of your message on how you're really going to help clients, I could totally understand why there's no conversation about value creation. Right. Okay. Yeah. Where's the machine to get your clients in the door? Yeah. So maybe talk about that because I'm looking at you and you're thinking to yourself, we need a machine to get clients in the door. And like your brain is broken for reasons that you and I both understand. (laughs) But I want to dig into why your brain is broken because there's a missing link here, right? Tell us what you're thinking about that doesn't make sense so that we can see it through your eyes. I want to go back, I think, and look at this uh, slightly differently. Everybody has a vision for their business in some way. It may be a very emotional vision. It may be a very thought out vision. That's the first place is that we all want a vision for our business about who we're going to serve, what we want to get out of our business. That could be revenue, it could be time, it could be that you're building an asset for future generations or for your other partners, but you have a vision. And it all starts with that. And then there's something I talk about in the book, which is what's the revolution you want to lead? And 
by that, I mean, what's the big idea that you really want your audience, your ideal clients and buyers to grasp onto? Something that's bigger than you, that's bigger than them, that we can all get excited about. And I think whether it's an accounting business or a consulting business or an architecture practice, you do want, we all want to go through that exercise to say, what is it that we're committed to helping our clients to do? And for me, that's a core belief, part of my belief system around authority. Not everybody's going to agree with that, but I believe that that's how we become successful when we are serving clients and buyers based on our expertise. So we have a vision. We have this idea, even if we're not sure how to say it yet, about this revolution that we want to lead. It could be as simple as that you want people to pay less in taxes, right? Or to pay only what is what they truly owe. It could be as simple as that. It could be as profound as I want to help people to lead a better life through making their accounting or systems easier, more efficient, so they can sleep at night. What we're talking about is that emotional connection. From there, what's also every bit as important is then defining that niche, right? How am I going to practice or deliver services in a way that's going to help me meet that big vision with my ideal clients and buyers? And I think what happens is a lot of times business owners don't really think through who's their ideal client and buyer. So they might have this big idea. Yeah, I want to create this accounting firm and I want to do this for people. But everybody's a client. Mm-hmm. And when everybody's a client, nobody's a client. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a step in there that I was assuming from our conversation that other people have taken, and not everybody has, that says, these this is my ideal target market. This is who I want to reach. It is a business owner, restaurant owners. It is wealthy, high net worth families that have these kind of properties. It's real estate developers, whatever whatever that is. And as you dial into that and you really start to learn and understand about that audience, then you can see things that you didn't see before, ways to ease their pain, ways to help them to get to their dream. And and that's how we get to value creation, really. Or it's one way. It's not the only way, but it's certainly the authority way to create value. And when you do that, and I've done that over and over and over again with soloists, small firms, I've certainly done it with the big firms, that's a whole different exercise, is when you do that and you focus, then you start to really build value because you create things beyond simply billing for your time. You create things that they buy for more than it costs you to produce. You leverage yourself and your services in ways that, you know, you just can't in in charging an hourly rate or even charging a flat amount, um, a competitive flat amount for a tax return. You've got to make it up in volume and efficiency. And it, that's a that's kind of a zero sum game at the end of the day. Okay. Great. So the the piece it sounds like that you assumed that everybody was taking that in fact many are not is the niching piece getting specific about your audience. Is that right? Yes. So there is definitely niche reluctance. Um, <laughs> it feels very risky. It does. And I mean, I remember before I niched, I was like, oh my God, this is so scary. 
And so I can appreciate, I mean, I will not forget the feeling of being at the precipice of a niche and just committing and being like, holy smokes, this is scary. Because what if it doesn't work out? Mm -hmm. And yet it is the best thing. And it was the best choice for me and the best advice that I got. Mm-hmm. at that stage in my business. So we could spend a lot of time on niche, <laughs> but I want to come back to the money and the margins. <laughs> and even though we might not have hard numbers, um, we were talking in the green room about anecdotally what you see in terms of margins on margins on businesses that head in the direction of authority become authorities. What have you seen happening? Well, let me start with the first one I ever saw, or the first one I ever really noticed, which was my own. So when I left big firm consulting the first time, I started a firm and I grew it and I wound up selling it to Arthur Anderson. And without intentionally building authority, we built authority. And what happened was Anderson literally added an extra zero to the price tag. And once you see that, you can't unsee that. And I literally went, oh my God, this is how this works. Okay, I get it now. So that was my my first experience with it. But I have seen it in a number of different ways. There's an example I use in the book in the uh, monetization chapter about a high-end consultant who's usually earning anywhere from three, four hundred thousand to six hundred thousand a year, and initially that person was earning just over a hundred, and they could reliably, as they had built authority, and in this particular case, we're talking a ten-year span. I mean, this, but it can happen a lot sooner, as you probably know yourself. It can happen very quickly, but this was a someone who served big firm corporates, wrote the first book. The book got some buzz, started to get some speaking engagements, and then he was able to really play with his business model. And you know now he's at a six times net income over about 10 years. I've also worked with clients where all we did was tweak a very small thing and their income doubled. And I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a guy who is a, he's a coach, and really calls himself an executive coach. The problem is that if you're in a Fortune 500 company, executive coaching is almost a commodity. It's bought internally by a staff group, and it's a beauty contest. You you meet with three people, and they decide if they like you or not, and then there's a flat fee. Mm-hmm. And a lot of his work was going through an intermediary. And so when he was lucky, he was getting eight ten thousand $10,000. So what we did is we changed his message. I don't want to say what it is because you'll recognize or can find him too easily, but we picked this niche, if you will. Mm -hmm. And he already had, he'd written a book about it. He'd been thinking about it. He'd been working on it. He just wasn't marketing himself that way. He wasn't positioning himself that way. So I said, okay, here's what we do. We call it this. And now you're not going to charge $10,000. You're going to charge $30,000. (gasps) kind of like you, right? That deep breath going, oh, I can't do that. I said, what's going to happen? So you lose a $10,000 engagement, you'll get a $35,000 one and it'll be like getting three. Yeah. So he did it and he got the engagement. So literally, now that was, you know, that wasn't his whole revenue, but that was his kind of his his core piece of revenue. So now he doesn't talk about $8,000 or $10,000, it's 35. And it's not even a value pricing conversation. It's simply because he is the 
only one in this niche. And there are certain kinds of organizations and certain kind of executives that need exactly that. So he's not wasting time talking to the people who don't need that. He's not a generalist executive coach anymore. He's a specialist. And we all know we pay more for specialists than we do for generalists. I just want to comment here. Because as I observe CPAs going through the process of specializing is working so much less. I talked to one of my clients today. She's down to three hours a week running her business. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a success story. You did the optimization yeah, part. Yeah. I'd call that a success story, yes. <laughs> so that she could be freed up to build the other part, right? Which is what we're talking about, becoming an authority in this niche that she's going into and or is in, I should say. But the, the thing that I see hands down is that when with focus comes simplicity, which comes increased time to focus, understand your niche, understand your audience, the problems that you can solve for them, which means you get better at your job, which means you provide more value, which means you can raise your rates. And I see that again and again and again. When is a person ready to make this leap in their business? What do they need to have in place? When's it too early? When do they need more experience still? What are, the, what are they looking for for signals? Usually you want to have a few years under your belt, at least running your business. Not necessarily, but not in the first two years typically. And I would say 98% of the time when people first hang out their shingle, they're just so happy to get any work that, and they're not emotionally or intellectually ready to even have that specialization conversation. And typically, because at least in the U.S., it's very much an American dream to start your own business. So your friends and your former colleagues, they're so excited for you and they send you business. And by the end of two years, that stuff tends to have died off. So if you haven't you know, built a sustainable business by that point, you start to kind of worry. So I would say at least a couple of years into your own business and then ideally, but you know, life isn't always ideal. Ideally, you feel this inkling that you want to do more. There's something that is not satisfying to you about the way that you're running your business right now. And and that could be that you don't have a steady stream of clients coming in the door. It could be that. It might be that you're getting clients, but you're bored by the problems that they're facing. Maybe you're doing traditional tax returns over and over and you're like, this is not very interesting. I really want to pivot to something that's going to get me excited again. And it could be, I've seen this, um, where someone's life changes in some major way by an outside force. And that could be that um, you have a child, someone uh, passes away, a, a business or a big client suddenly goes away or arrives. It changes the game in some way. And I find a lot of times that might be the impetus. But usually the sign is that you're not happy. It's not feeling right. Because if you're, if you're happy, you're happy. I think some listeners will resonate with a combination of bored, exhausted. What did somebody say? Bored, exhausted, and trapped. Ouch. Yeah. Something's got to change. The path off the hamster wheel is not evident, right? Like they can't see the exit ramp. And I think so often what happens is people have an interest that is kind of on the side, like they really like this, you know, these 10 or 20 clients over here who do this kind of thing. But those 10 or 20 clients are in a sea of 400 clients. And they know they're fired up about it. Like this actually happened just the other day. 
I was talking to a woman who, you know, kind of who has all all the classic problems, all the classic symptoms, I should say. And we dug into it. And the minute we touched on a certain thing, a certain type of client, she just lit up. I mean, lit up the room. Like it came through the Zoom screen, right? And I was just like, whoa, okay, pause. Like we're going here, right? What's going on? Mm -hmm. So we dug into it. And it struck me that she had something of a, and I think you mentioned this earlier, like a, a zone of genius, that she was uniquely good at this thing. But in the sea of everything she does every day all week long, it was just like to her, even though she loved it, it was just one of many things she needed to do. So can you talk about leveraging your zone of genius or perhaps even before that step, how to identify the things that you love when sometimes you're just like, you know, you're just going around and around 60 hours a week and there's not even time to identify what you love. So I'll give you two ways to do it. Um, one is there is a workbook attached to the book that walks through an exercise, but I'll give you a shorthand version of that exercise. And what that is, is think about, and usually by the time you get to five or 10 projects, you'll, you'll see the commonalities, but think about projects or jobs if you don't think of your work as, as projects where you were one of two things. You were either jamming on all cylinders. It was the best work you ever did or it was the best project team you ever did. It was all the superlatives. Or it was the project from hell, the client from hell. And when you, if you take, just come up with, you know, at least five of those scenarios, maybe more if you're not seeing the answer as you go through those five and then dig into each one. And say to yourself, okay, what did I really love about that project? Was it the kind of company it was? Was it something about the work? Was it the project team? Was it that I worked with a team? Was it that I worked solo? Was it that I got to be creative? Was it that I got to rely on my skill, my skill at X? You know, what was it? It's really, it's almost like a like an autopsy, if you will, of a project to, to really understand for you doesn't matter what anybody else thought, but for you, what was really wonderful. And the flip side, if you have trouble with that, take the projects from hell, because that can also tell you where your genius zone isn't, right? And as you start to do that, and especially if you've been in business for even a couple of years, you, you probably pretty much know if you've been doing this for two years, the things you like and the things you don't. And the other thing you can do is take your client list. It's harder with 400, but if you've got, you know, 20 clients, it's a little bit more manageable. And you can say, okay, I'm going to force rank my clients from the ones I really love to the ones I really can't stand. And chances are, you know, who's at the top, you know, who's at the bottom. It's the middle. That's the challenge. And that gives you more insight. And I think in the case you mentioned, that would allow her to see the 12 or 15 out of 400 gems, but it's pay attention to your energy around that. When you're excited to answer the phone, when you're excited to go to a meeting, when you're excited to work on one of their projects, that's a sign that you're probably working from some aspect of your genius zone. And the thing is that you could have a client who's in your genius zone, but you're doing something for them that isn't. So you might say, okay, I want clients like Joe, but I want to be able to do this kind of work with them. And you can do that. That's the beauty of owning your own business. You can slice and dice this as long as there's a market 
for what you want to do. You can slice and dice this to create anything you want. A lot of people are going to hear you say that. Yeah. I hear that and I'm like, yeah, I want to do anything I want. But a lot of people are going to hear that and go like, oh, that's, that is way too big and way too scary. Like, it's way too nebulous. It's too fraught with, I'm sure there are alligators on that path. Find me something a little safer or make that a little smaller. Um, not smaller in terms of like the size of you know, maybe just how far I can go with my dream. But like the world is your oyster when you're 22 is like, could I just stay home and watch Netflix? Well, (laughs) this is really scary. And I totally get this. And listen, I've been scared more times in my career than I haven't been scared, right? We've all been there. But here's the thing. What do you want? Do you want to stay in a corner and be scared and be small and be unhappy? Or do you want to take a risk maybe you fail. I failed. I absolutely have failed. And I picked myself up and started again. Some people will say, but I have five people on staff. And they do. I have five people on staff. I can't just like throw caution to the wind. So then what do they do? You do it one step at a time. And actually, everything should be one step at a time. This isn't about, you know, throwing yourself off the cliff and dying on the rocks below, right? This is doing it in a way... You know, I talked about genius zone, but it also has to fit your your temperament for your business. I would never suggest everybody just run off the cliff. But when you do that exercise with clients, what that's going to do is it's going to open your eyes so that the next time you see a great client or, or work that's in your genius zone and one that's bad, you're going to know the difference. So the next thing you do is you're not, oh, I have to bring in client X because I have five mouths to feed. You say, you know what? I want to bring more of my ideal client and I'm going to charge them more. And you're going to charge them more because of the other things we've talked about, because you're building your expertise, you're building authority, you're slowly, because it doesn't happen overnight, you're slowly creating this niche. So I don't want to suggest that this isn't big and it isn't scary, but It has to be done if you want to travel, if you will, on this authority road. And forget authority completely for the moment. If you want to travel on a road that allows you to build a happy, successful, profitable business. And happy not just for everybody else, but for you too. And let me just throw in just a really quick story. When I sold my firm... Um, I had a a co-founder and had some employees who I made partners, so everybody got something out of the deal. And the reason that I sold it was I wasn't happy anymore. I, I realized that in order to grow the firm to this next level, that I was going to have to do something that I didn't want to do. And so what was the option? I Was I going to fire everybody? No, I looked for an option that eventually happened to be Arthur Anderson buying us that allowed people to get money out of the deal. They all had jobs to go to. We had a story to tell about what happened. And I got to do things that were in my genius zone. And that will change over time. There are things that you want to do right now that 10 years from now may not feel natural. That's why businesses evolve. And especially when they're solo businesses or very small businesses, because we're people, we evolve and we should be allowed to evolve while still taking care of the people within the business. I'm not suggesting you just fire everybody. I just think it's a process. 
Great. Okay. I love that. Once people decide or become aware that this is the path that they're kind of on, you know, like sometimes it takes you a little bit of time for your reality to catch up with you. Like, oh, I didn't realize I was here and this is what I was doing. Once people realize that this is the path that they're on and they're like, okay, we're going for it, going in this direction. What do you find is hardest for people? Where do they tend to get tripped up? Oh, um, in my experience, it's how they sell this new vision to their audience because it's it's selling is it's like a muscle and it, it needs to be exercised to really perform at its best. And so what happens is if you're used to having a business that looked one way and you're used to selling it a certain way, and by selling, I just mean how you talk about it to potential clients and buyers, and then you've shifted the business in some way, typically you want to also shift how you're selling. In, in the authority path, selling is about publishing it's about creating what I call an authority circle, which is a group of, of people that are intricately connected to getting the message out about your business um, in both directions. You're helping them, they're helping you. And then selling really becomes more about having sales conversations because people are finding you because of your expertise and your specialty and your reputation. So it's that the biggest mistake I usually see, and it's really the reason why I wrote the book, is that they're not selling in a way that aligns with how they've positioned and monetized their business. Are they still thinking, are they still selling as if they were the old business and talking as if they were the old business? Well, it's it tends to be more of a mix. Like there's some things that come over from the old business, like the coach that I mentioned had a really hard time focusing the conversation on this one area because he knew so many other things. And I said, yeah, but your value here and the reason that you're worth three and a half times what you thought you were, at least, is because of that niche. So that's your lens. That's your filter. And it just takes practice. You have to keep remembering how your new positioning looks, what clients you want to attract? What are the sound bites that you use, whether it's in a casual conversation, it's in your emails, it's in some things that you publish. It's a, it's kind of a process. And so that's where I find people have to work at it a little bit. Okay, to kind of get used to their new, not identity so much perhaps, but just how they talk about what they say and what they no longer say about working, about the work they do. Okay, great, I love it. Um, when you say publishing, I know that you mean that to encompass all the things that you mentioned. Um, I think the mind still latches right onto books. In a digital age and in a COVID sort of time where we're not together the way that we're used to, what are the paths that are working well right now for people starting out on the authority path, given the sort of new reality that we're experiencing? Well, first, let me say that any example I use is contingent upon their audience. Different audiences want different things. Um, for example, on my group coaching call this morning, we had someone whose audience is very traditional, I'll call them banker types, um, so I don't identify them, um, suit and tie still in an office, even now. And that audience is not a big social media audience. He's actually sending them a postcard. 
And it's highly effective. It's the second time he's done it. And the first time it, I don't even want to say it paid for itself. It, I mean, I think the, the, it cost a thousand dollars to send it and he pulled in about 150,000. So clearly cost effective, but that's unusual. Um, what I see most often books can be effective, typically not at the beginning of your authority journey, unless you want to use it like as a business card. You don't think of it as a revenue generator. It's really just to put your ideas out there. Um, what I see most common right now, podcasting is really hot, obviously. If you're good at podcasting and you can host a podcast, you have the opportunity to interview whoever you want, mm-hmm. who will agree to come on your show, basically. Mm-hmm. And most everybody will agree to come on your podcast. People love the long tail of podcasting. So podcasting is great because it gives you a chance to really test out your point of view. And by point of view, I just mean what are the planks of your belief system around your expertise and your audience? So you can try those out. You can, people start to listen to them and they start to engage with your ideas. And sometimes they'll say, ah, I don't agree with that. And you'll, and you'll listen and there's enough people and you realize, yeah, you know what? I didn't explain it well enough. I need to use a different word. I need to describe this in a different way. So you're testing that point of view with an audience. Podcasting is great for that, but so is writing. And I'm going to argue for a typical authority, quote unquote, there are two things that you need to be able to do, write and speak. And podcasting is speaking, right? It doesn't have to be about being in front of a room with 500 people. It could be as intimate as this and you're still speaking. And I think writing is important. It is difficult to get into the authority space without some evidence in writing of what you're thinking about and how you think. Um, I once worked with a client who hated writing. He said he wasn't good at it. I actually disagree, but he was wonderful at video and he created all of these videos and they got engagement, but they weren't getting engagement by some of the people that he most wanted. So all I had him do was to take those videos and pull out what was key, transcribe them basically, edit the transcriptions and put them out. And so now what he does when he ever ever does a video, he also does a written piece that's attached to that. Shot up his engagement numbers, shot up his revenue, his audience is, his email list, that's what I mean by audience, is very much larger than it was before. So writing, um, when you've done enough writing, getting um, exposure to other people's platforms with your writing, i.e. you take a piece that you write and it goes someplace else where your ideal people care about and are going to be reading it. Uh, so writing, podcasting, other people's platforms, um, those are the big ones. And of course, you know, you've got to have an email list. Right. Because at the end of the day, the email list is your property. It's your territory and nobody can take it away from you. We need to have you back for a whole episode just on email lists because (laughs) it is rarely being done and it's even more rarely being used well. But you know what? I just have to say something. What's really interesting about that. um, I've had two accountants in the last 20 years, both of whom love them to death. I think they're really good, really solid. And I just realized when you said that I've never received an email communication, you know, that was an email list kind of thing from either of them. Yeah, the never in the space there is not the sort of what others are doing, which is funnel. I mean, there's no funnel. Yeah, there's no funnel. Yeah, yeah. there's a website that sells services and not deliverables and a no lead magnet 
that doesn't lead to a list that doesn't exist, that doesn't get nurtured. Yeah. It's not there. So um, that's what we're working on over here <laughs> I get that. for folks. Okay. So last question here. When you head down this path of authority, what are some of the ways that you begin to monetize it? So I think of monetizing in two ways. It's what are you offering for sale and how do you price those things that you're offering? And you can play with both sides of that equation. So let's take what I think of as a typical CPA style business. You're probably offering some a menu of services around tax returns and and filings, government filings. So you may have a, whether you have an hourly rate or you have a, a flat rate. Um, what happens when you start to build authority is that you can take those traditional things and price them in new ways. You can price them higher because you're specializing. I'm thinking of an accountant, and she's in, in a mid-sized firm, not a small firm, who specializes in restaurants, higher-end restaurants. She gets a very healthy premium over what her non-specialized peers do, even though her menu of services is very similar. But the other thing that you can do is you can change the menu. And that means you can create retainer relationships, you can create uh, products, you can create a membership subscription, you can, I mean, really the sky's the limit. Um, And you can create information products that you sell one time. Um, You might decide you want to help do-it-yourself tax people um, and have some kind of of a membership for them. There's literally an unlimited number of ways you can monetize. But the key to think about this is it's the services that you offer and the price tags that you attach. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's an example in in the book that I use of a guy who is sort of a traditional consultant. And by traditional, I mean, you know, he had a book, um, does some speeches and does these big consulting assignments, like 125K a pop. Um, but the, And you can make a lot of money doing that. I called it the gilded hamster wheel because he makes a lot of money. But because of the work, he's on an airplane all the time. He's tired. He's grumpy, which is, th- makes me think of like an accountant at the, towards the end of tax season, right? You just want it to be over. And so what we did with his business was we knew that he needed to change. And he was willing to make less money. But my theory was, well, can't we do this and make more like maybe maybe we could do both. Why not? Let's try for that. And so when you start, I'm a big fan of of doing a product service ladder where you're writing everything down so you can see it all in one place. All of your services, all of your products, your pricing. And when we started to look at that, um, there was a questioning process with him that said, "Well, what if? What if we do this? What if we do that? What if?" all of your meetings didn't have to be in person. What if maybe instead of doing eight to 10 speeches a year, what if you did something else? What if you had an advisory retainer option? What if you created a Slack style channel membership for the CXO of this function that you serve and you have a very high membership fee? And you serve them that way. And so that was the the path we went down. And we didn't get it all right the first time through, but what happened when we were through with this over the course of about six months is that he was traveling 60% less, he was making the same amount of money with the opportunity to make more, 
And we also looked at some things that he decided not to do, but that were really interesting for leveraging, like bringing in some new people and actually physically leveraging with people um, some of the things that he had always done himself, whether that was licensing them, teaching them how to do this, taking a cut of their revenue, bringing them in to do junior tasks on assignments. And he'd never really thought about leveraging in that way before. So what, what the authority piece, I think of this as, as three things. There's positioning, there's monetizing, and there's selling. And so you always want to position first so you know who you're serving, what's your big idea, what's the niche, what's your specialty, and then you can monetize. Right? Then you can make that product service ladder of what you have now and say, gee, how well does this work with where I want to go with my business? And that's where you can test. And you don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to make a major change. You can tweak. You could say, it's always easier to tweak with new clients than it is with existing ones. But you might say, okay, the next new client, we have the opportunity to serve on this. Instead of saying that it's um, $2,000, we're going to say it's $4,000, but we guarantee that you'll be happy with the work at the end. And you just try it on the next client, see how it works. And if it works, you go, hmm, good data point. I'm going to try that again. And you try it again. So it's not, it doesn't have to be rocket science. You just have to give yourself permission to look at how you're charging for your services and packaging your services in different ways. That, I love, that's the piece, is you have to give yourself permission to rethink how you're packaging up your knowledge and your services to create value for your customer. That is awesome. Michelle Moulton, this has been so great. Thank you for coming on the Business Strategy for CPA's podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Geraldine. I can't wait to hear the pushback. I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. Come at me. Let me know what you think. Bring it on. Oh, wait, before you go, how can listeners find you? Well, the easiest place to find me is my website, which is RochelleMoulton.com. Everything is up there, including links to the book and to my social. I'm very active on Twitter, at ConsultingChick. And you can find me in LinkedIn and occasionally in Instagram. Awesome. We will link to all those places in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with Thank us. Thank you, Geraldine. It was, a, it was really a pleasure. Thank you. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling inspired to revisit the vision for my own business. If you have genius, you want to contribute to the world, and you're not sure what it looks like to convert it into a solid, tangible business, be sure to find Rochelle at Be Unstoppable. I'll link to the ways you can find her in the show notes. And if you're wondering how you can increase your clarity on your niche and your ideal buyer so that you can attract clients you simply love working with, then head over to SheThinksBigCoaching.com to subscribe to my daily drip of business strategy for CPAs. You'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position your business, how to price your services, and how to sell outcomes so that you can be more profitable, get your time back, and get off the tax hamster wheel for once and for all. That URL again is shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.